O God, the King Eternal, whose light divides the day from the night and turns the shadow of death into the morning, drive far from us all wrong desires, incline our hearts to keep your law, and give our and guide our feet into the way of peace, that having done your will with cheerfulness during the day, we may, when the night comes, rejoice to give you thanks through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. All right, so we've been uh, talking in the Catechism after the explanation of the Lord's Prayer line by line. We've gone on to this section about uh, the rule of life uh, and, uh, and the Anglican rule, which you remember the Anglican rule of life has three main components. What are they? That, yep. And weekly communion, yep. So weekly communion, daily office, and private devotion. So I would actually, you know, if there's a three-legged stool that we should, you know, there's this kind of old idea among Anglicans that, uh, that uh, Richard Hooker speaks of this three-legged stool of scripture, tradition, and reason, which he didn't say, by the way. Uh, what he actually says is that um, we, we read scripture uh, through the tradition, exercising our minds, exercising our reason. Uh, but scripture is prime, so that's that's the, the way to talk about it. But but this is more like a three-legged stool, right? It's if any one of these three collapses, uh, the spiritual life is in danger. Actually, um, why? Well, because it's it is uh, it is enabled by God's grace, particularly sacramental grace in the Eucharist. Um, it is uh, deeply founded upon the encounter of God in Scripture, um, an encounter with God in Scripture. Um, an encounter with the God of Scripture, which would be another way to put it. Um, and then finally, it's a, it's a, it is a life of, of loving God in prayer. So all those have to go together. Um, and, if, and if one slips, then, then the others are, are in danger as well. So, and that's not to say, look, I don't, want to get you the, I don't want to give you the wrong impression of this. I don't want you to hear like, oh, we have to pray the daily office or our, or our spiritual life's going to be in the tank. It's like, no, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is this. It's a really good way and a very reliable way. Um, and if you desire to grow in grace and grow in the spiritual life, then uh, the daily office has to be taken up in some mode or fashion, right? Um, I think it's a good mode because, um, well, I'll give you some of the options that are out there. One is you could just read the, you could pick up at any bookstore, re, you know, read the Bible in a year. Um, well, that's okay, but part of the problem is you're not reading from all over Scripture at the same time. You're reading uh, in course, you're reading selections, you're reading things like that. Uh, one of the things that the daily office readings pr provides us with is the opportunity to read scripture as a whole together. Um, so that's a wonderful thing. But it also gives you the opportunity to read scripture as part of a liturgy of prayer that's shared with other people, um, which is a very powerful thing. Um, as well, I would say that, um, you know, one of the things that, that I, I find myself saying more and more is that, um, you know, the church doesn't need you to be here on a Sunday morning. Like, I think anyone who preaches that is just missing the point, right? The church is fully constituted whenever two or three are gathered, right? Fully constituted. You're the one who's missing out. <laughs> like, you're the one who's missing out. You're missing out on uh, the, the most immense possible grace that you can receive and know you've received it, right? Because, look, I mean, what Scripture says about the Eucharist is that it's a participation in the body and blood of Christ. It's it, and therefore a participation in the life of the church. So if any of these things goes goes amiss, right, you you really do lose out on 
um, on one of the one of the really key items in the spiritual life. So anytime I'm doing spiritual direction with someone in the initial phases, one of the things I want to know is, so tell me about like what your rule of life says about weekly communion. And, and we go even deeper. It's like, uh, do you have it just marked down clearly? No matter where I am, when Sunday rolls around, I'm going to be in church unless I'm sick, right? In which case, I will call the priest and have them come visit my house and bring me communion, right? Because that's a good rule of life. That's like the rule of life as I, would, as I have it, right? Um, it's the rule of life a number of people have. Um, I would also add into that um, that um, that means keeping short accounts with your neighbor so that you uh, are not prohibited from receiving communion, right? So you say, hey, I don't want to come to, I don't want to come to Sundays with this big thing hanging over my head. So I'm going to keep really short accounts and make amends with my neighbor constantly, right? Um, so if that's a roommate or your next door neighbor or your family or whatever it might be, I'm just going to keep those short accounts. Um, and that's a, that's a big discipline because if you know, like, hey, I'm going to have to go to church on Sunday and I'm going to have to receive communion. I'm going to have to do it like this because I've, it's in my rule of life, right? Like I'm going to receive communion and I'm going to receive communion in this state of grace that I really want to be committed to. Well, then, then you're going to do it because you wrote it down and you said, I'm going to do this. And I'm, I'm serious about this. Um, when it comes to private devotions, uh, you know, people have asked me, well, what can that be? That, that can literally be anything. Um, it's kind of one of the great things about Anglicanism that I just love, which is this. It's like, well, there are things that we just say you should do, but there are also things where we say you have a lot of freedom to, you know, be creative, do what do what suits you, do what you like, do what do what makes sense to you. Um, many, many, many authors through the years, many many thinkers, and have have done things like written down their daily private prayers. Um, so it's a wonderful uh, thing to be able to do. And this can be anything from meditating on Scripture to uh, having um, lists for intercession to uh, um, there are all manner of prayer practices that you can take up, right? And there are all manner of traditions of prayer and aesthetical uh, life that you, can, that you can take up. Okay, let's work through this. Um, we're going to say, I want to say, I want to just clean up a little bit about the daily office because I think we blew through it last time. Um, we're on page 86, on the bottom of page 86. I think that's where we were, yep. Okay. Um, so one of the things we said about the Book of Common Prayer is that um, it, it is saturated with the Scriptures. So if you, read, if you read the Book of Common Prayer very long, you'll start to realize, like, oh my goodness, this is all Scripture. Like, all of it. Um, I wish that somebody would just, and, and maybe it's just something where I need to put my money where my mouth is and say, oh, I'm just going to do it, uh, would put together something like a concordance of the prayer book, connecting it with Scripture, making those Scripture references, right, to every last bit of it. Because it's so impactful to see that all of this is drawn from Scripture. But what is it? It's organized and orchestrated. Okay, here's, the, here's one problem that you run up against. And, uh, and the only way I can really tell you this is when I was a kid, I started reading the Bible uh, I was thinking of seven years old, just read cover to cover, tried to read cover to cover. And I got to about Leviticus and was like, oof, this is really hard. Now, if I had, if I had uh, done something like this, said, you know, this is really hard to read. Maybe I should just skip forward a few chapters. But I was like, no, 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 I've been told you got to read a whole book, man, cover to cover. You got to go for it. Well, it was just, it just defeated me. If I'd been told, hey, something like this, you know, just move on to Joshua. 
Then read Judges and Ruth, you'll love it. This is great. Um, then I probably would have, actually. Um, but, but it was so hard uh, to do. Um, what the prayer book does is it organizes Scripture and the reading of Scripture in such a way that, uh, that it's not overly burdensome, but it's also not too small, right? It's, it's, it's manageable. It's just right. Um, when we speak of orchestrating, I was using this analogy. This is actually the word that's used is, uh, you know, if you ever watch a really good conductor lead an orchestra, what are they constantly doing? Surveying the sections, right? And they're looking from side to side. And when it's time for the flutes to, to have their big thing, and, and the flutes are always a little bit like, and the conductor's like, more, more, more. And he's like, ah! <laughs> you know, because it's time for them to shine, right? Um, and then when, you know, the timpani has its big, its big time, you know, he looks out of the timpani. Well, you never have to tell a timpani player to, to play loudly because they are always wanting to play loudly. Um, if anything, you're like, no, you're getting their attention to calm them down, right? Um, preachers have this problem, and if you've ever, you know, been with a preacher who's always kind of like, uh, it's just harping on one thing, right? Um, everyone needs to be reminded that uh, Scripture is much bigger than one person's emphasis. Um, and, uh, and so that whole view opens up, and you get all of these things that you wouldn't otherwise get if it was just up to you, right? Um, I was talking with a couple, you know, recently, and they were saying, well, you know, we, we really do love, you know, this style of preaching that covers an entire book, cover to cover, you know, like, hey, look, I love preaching through Romans as much as the next guy, uh, but I've realized that it's actually really bad for people uh, to uh, be under that kind of preaching for very long. Why? Because it leads you to over-focus on one thing to the neglect of others. Um, it leads you to draw your entire understanding of God from one text. And, um, and it's, it's essentially like an orchestra with just flutes, right? It's like, well, we're not hearing all the other portions. That has to be orchestrated. Um, so the prayer book does a really good job of doing this. That's part of the idea, right? I mean, look, part of the reason that a prayer book came into being was uh, that Thomas Cramer really had a, uh, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury in the English Reformation, the first. He was the one who basically envisioned this uh, renewal of Christian England. I mean, he had this vision of families going to the parish church on Monday mornings, praying morning prayer with the priest, going out to the fields working, coming back in the evening praying, and then going and getting dinner ready. Now, of course, that's really hard to do, but, uh, but that's what they were doing. Um, and that was, that was the vision that was there. Ooh, now I, I can be heard. This is great. Uh, so well, that might even be a little bit too loud. Um, but so the, the idea here is, um, is not only to uh, keep those daily prayers, but to learn Scripture well. I mean, if you have an entire uh, society that knows, I mean, such an odd thing, but, you know, the reality of it is that the dearth of catechesis was such, it was in such a sorry state. Uh, kind of people knew, like, uh, what, the, what penances they should be doing. People knew kind of like, you know, how much they'd have to sort of put in the coffer in order to uh, spring their friends from purgatory. Uh, many of them did. Uh, but there was also, and, and this is part of the thing that historians have to, rec have to recognize, there was a deep hunger for God in the, in the society, like deep hunger. Um, people really did want to know these things. And for a long time, 
they had been just sort of asleep. Um, they had been uh, deeply desirous of, of practices of prayer that they could keep um, and really wanted to have these uh, private devotions going on. So this is a, this is a big thing. And, and it's actually one of the questions that's asked of, uh, that's asked of Cranmer by the, by the Catholic conservative bishops. They're like, well, what will become of people who, uh, who you know, have had such a life of private devotion in church on Sunday mornings? And you know, while the Mass is going on, they're praying their prayers. Will they stop praying and pray this now? Like, they were really worried that they would stop praying. Um, but but what's, what, what comes about is this very balanced um, approach. Uh, it's deeply biblical, deeply committed to the sacraments, and deeply committed to this life of private prayer. So it's really, really key. All right, but I don't want to keep harping on that. Let's begin with question 255 on page 87. What is a rule of life? A rule of life is a discipline by which I order my worship, work, and leisure as a pleasing sacrifice to God. Um, I'm going to eat my own uh, medicine today, take my own medicine today, and, and just tell you a story about what happened to me on Tuesday. Um, I've been working on this bathroom remodel, and I've gone completely full tilt into it. Um, and it's just demanding all my time and all my energy. And on Tuesday afternoon, uh, I got stung by one of my bees, and it sent me into a real panic. I wasn't having an anaphylactic shock, but it was in a real panic, and I just collapsed on our bathroom floor. And it was basically in and out of consciousness for 30 minutes. Well, looking back on it, it was that I was just working myself to the bone, and I needed to take a break. So my point here is that human beings are not meant to focus on one thing and one thing only, forever, interminably. And that, does not, and that means not just don't work so hard, it means um, balance these three, uh, worship, work, and leisure. Um, we have to have a balance. Um, I say this to the law student here. Uh, you, you've heard this from me in the past. It's, you know, you just have to, you really have to curtail your ambitions in, in this working life. You have to say, you know, it's not all about work. Um, it's also not all about leisure either. You know, working for the weekend is a problem, um, and it has to be um, uh, uh, balanced as well. But the thing that we most would struggle with is having enough um, area for worship. Well, how do we order this? Well, it goes back to this idea of a rule. What's a rule? We talked about this last week. Well, the rule comes from the Latin regula, which, um, regula, see, you get that right in there, regula. Uh, regula. <laughs> um, it is uh, essentially uh, um, a measuring stick. Okay, so, so the creed in the ancient church is called the regula fide. It's the measure of faith. It's the mark of faith. Um, it's... Compare your faith to that of the creed. Where does it line up? Well, one easy way to do is just say, well, I accept the creed. Okay. Um, but but the, the question is, it, there's this rule of faith, right? Um, and, of course, the, the catechism is great because it says the rule of faith is the creed, the rule of prayer is the Lord's Prayer, the rule of the moral life is the Ten Commandments. Okay, so all of these are how we measure that. Um, I've been uh, putting tile in my bathroom, and one of the things that you have to have is you have to have a snap line on your floor in order to know that your tiles are going in rightly. Otherwise, what happens? They get all askew and it looks like some amateur did it, which is what my bathroom floor looks like now. Uh, but but it's, it's a problem right down the road because you look and you say, well, this isn't as beautiful as I wanted it to be. It, it looks like some kid did it. Um, well, what do you have to have? You have to know what straight looks like, in other words. Um, so a rule provides that. Um, 
so this rule of discipline, another way to look at it is like a, like a trellis. So uh, if you ever grow tomatoes in Texas, one of the things you have to have is a trellis. You can't, you can't sort of grow tomatoes on the ground. It doesn't work. Why? No, they rot. They, they get soaked with rain. The bugs get into them, and they eat them, and, you know, it's just a mess. But if you have a trellis, you get great big tomatoes, and you get to eat them, and they're so lovely and delicious, and, and, uh, and all because you just put that cheap little wire ring around them. And, and how's that? I mean, of course, you have to do other things, but, but what does that do for the plant? It tells it which way up is so that it can bear fruit, right? And, and we, need, we really do need this. We need to know what direction up is. Otherwise, we're just going to be like, well, hmm. What do you think? Should I pray today? Uh, I think I'd like another cup of coffee. And then before you know it, you're just all over the place. And if you have ADHD, like, it's even worse, right? You're just like, oh, where'd my morning go? Um, <laughs> but a rule tells you. This is, this is what up looks like. This is where it's going. Um, why do you need a rule of life? I need a rule of life because my fallen nature is disordered, distracted, and self-centered. A rule of life helps me to resist sin and establish godly habits through which the Holy Spirit will increasingly conform me to the image of Christ. I love that. Conform to the image of Christ is, is not very well uh, uh, quoted there, but it's, it's out of Romans, actually. Um, conform to the image of Christ is in Romans. Um, and, uh, but, but let's go to this just really quickly. My fallen nature is disordered, distracted, and self-centered. Uh, St. Augustine was the, uh, really the is the prime source of this understanding of disordered affections and disordered wills. What does he mean by it? Okay, so order. What does order mean? So just, just think about a string of numbers. One, two, three, four, five, six. What are they? They're ordered, right? <laughs> that's, that's what we mean. They're ordered. They're in, they're in the right place. Everything in the right place. Um, what if you jumble them up? They're no longer in order. First isn't first. Second isn't second. Third isn't third. Fourth isn't fourth, right? So it, uh, when Augustine speaks about disordered goods or disordered affections, what he's saying is that the very highest things are not kept in the highest place and the lowest things are not kept in the lowest place, Right? So here's, here's how we do this in, in human life. We say, well, I know that God is the greatest good that can possibly be attained to in my life. Yeah, but I think I'd rather just sit around and watch TV all day, right? Because it's disordered. Now, is there a place for sitting around and watching TV all day? Well, maybe, maybe. If you've got nothing to do, you know. I, I would say, like, maybe if you're on an airplane going somewhere and that's literally all you can do, like, you know, flying to, uh, I don't know, Korea or something like that. You know, you, you say, I've got this time and I'm going to do this and, and, uh, or I have a reason to be doing this. Um, but, but otherwise, it's like, well, that's, that's just kind of a waste, isn't it? And you have to sort of say, well, what's the first good here? Um, but we make these decisions every day, right? But we also recognize when our lives get out, get out of order. Uh, distraction is the other issue, which is, uh, and distraction in prayer is one of the things that the, the saints talk a great deal about. Um, because, you know, here, here's how it works. You, you, get your or, you get your life in order and you say, hey, every morning I'm going to take half an hour to pray. It's going to be awesome. And then you, you do it for a few weeks and it is, it's awesome. And then after three, two, three weeks, it's like, ugh. And your mind starts to go to your to-do list. It's like, well, I got to go do this today and I got to take care of this and I got to do this and I got to do this. And, ah, jeez. <sighs> and they just keep coming in. And you can't pay attention, and you just you, you can't focus. Um, 
here's a helpful hint, by the way. Uh, Teresa of Avila speaks about um, uh, distractions in prayer, and I love what she says. She says, you have to treat them like little children who, ad- who interrupt adult conversation. <laughs> and, you know, we do this with our kids. It's like, look, you just burst in on a, on a conversation. You didn't knock at the door. You didn't, uh, you didn't wait patiently for a break in the conversation. So here's what you're going to have. You're just going to come in the room. That's fine. Uh, put your hand on my knee. And when I'm done with my conversation, I'll turn to you and I will address you. Um, we, we do this with our little, little kids. Um, well, you do the same thing in prayer. You say, you know what? You're important, but you're not as important as what I'm doing right now. I will get to you when I get to you. So you're going to sit patiently, and I will get to you when I get to you. That's how you do it. Um, and you say, I will provide space for you. Because what you're, what you're saying is not you're unimportant. It's just you're not as important as what I'm doing right now. So you bring them back into order. Um, worst of all, our prayer life becomes self-centered. It's like this. Well, I tried praying, but I wasn't really feeling it. You know, I didn't really, I just didn't, it wasn't, it wasn't very, it didn't, yeah, I was, just wasn't getting anything out of it. And it's like, well, here's part of the problem. If you, if you pray for any longer than about, I don't know, three months, six months, um, only focused on what you're going to get out of it, you're not going to do it very long. But when you finally start to get it that it's really not about you, that it's about, it's about God, and it's about God working in you to conform you to the image of Christ, then it starts to start to work. Um, but as long as you're thinking, ah, I'm just not feeling I feel really out of it, I feel really tired, you know, I don't want to do this, um, then you're not going to do it. Um, but there's a, there's a kind of principle here, which is, um, this is one of the reasons I find the daily office so compelling, is you just say, I'm going to drag my mouth and my body into it and let my heart follow ultimately. And that may take years. It may take dozens of years. It may take 30 years. You know, I'm always reminded that um, Teresa of Avila, or not, uh, Teresa of Calcutta, Mother Teresa, she spent the last 20 years of her life, if not more, in total abject dryness in the spiritual life. Now, can you imagine that? She was praying on her knees with a straight back for four hours a day. And then after that, she'd go out on the streets of Calcutta and pull people out of gutters and, and haul them on her back. Right? That was her life. And she was spiritually dry. Well, she could do it because she wasn't concerned about what she was getting out of it. She was doing it for God. Um, if we're doing it for God, then, then we'll take up the suffering. Right. Paul writes in Romans um, you know, that, that uh, we, we, that's in today's reading actually, uh, he kind of puts this proviso on uh, the life in the Spirit and says, you know, yes, so you have the Spirit uh, and, and you'll, you'll, uh, you'll, you'll be with him, you'll be with God in glory, provided that you suffer with Christ. That's basically what I'm paraphrasing it. But, but suffering is necessary to the Christian life. You have to do it. You have to go through it. Part of the worst suffering you can face is, is, feeling, uh, is feeling this dryness, right? Feeling that uh, there's very little consolation in prayer. Um, the reason I say that is not only because it's true, but, but because many people face dryness in prayer, and they wonder, like, what's wrong with me? What's, you know, what's going on here? I, I, should be, I should be happy. I should be filled with joy. And, and, uh, and, and it's just hard. It's just really hard, um, especially when you're going through really hard things. Okay, what does this do? Well, it helps me to resist sin. Oh, that's a good thing, right? Like, how, how on earth do you resist sin by your own power? Well, you can't. That's, that's what the church teaches about. 
um, how much ability you have to resist sin in and of yourself. Zero. Zero. You got none. Um, where does all the power come to resist sin? God. Thank God. Um, helps you to resist sin. Uh, establish godly habits. You know, uh, it's almost like a cliche. If you want to start flossing, what do you have to do? You have to floss like every day for a month. Okay. So what, you know, every day for a month seems like, yeah, I can do that. I, I can totally do that. That's fine. I can do anything for a month. Right? And what you find is that by the time the month's over, you're like, ah, I'll do this for the rest of my life. This is great. Um, it's like that with any number of things. And and if if you came to me and said, look, Father, like I I I get what you're hearing, I get what you're saying about the daily office. I understand it. Like it's fine, uh, but I don't think I can do it. So we'll try it. You know, do it every day. Do morning prayer and evening prayer, or morning prayer and compliment every day for a month. Uh, don't don't let a day go by where you didn't do it. At the end of the month, I guarantee you that you'll have gone through this very, it's kind of like a process of mourning. It's like uh, you, you try to resist it for a while and then you accept it, right? You live in denial that your spiritual life has been in the tank for too long. And then, you, and then all of a sudden you're like, God, this was awesome. Like, why wasn't I doing this before? Um, I've learned so much about scripture. I've learned, I've learned so much. I'm, my, my prayer life is going great. Um, I'm remembering to pray for people. All these things are happening. And I don't think I can give it up. And you might down the road, but you'll never forget that experience of saying, you know, I, I did it for a month and it, it was really great and I, and I couldn't put it down afterwards. So just a heads up, that's, that's one way to do it. Um, many people will often say too, it's like, but it just feels impersonal. Like I don't, I don't understand. Like it just feels like it's not me. Well, here's what you find after a month or 60 days. It's like, those prayers are your prayers. They become yours. Um, so lead you through that. Uh, through which the Holy Spirit will increasingly conform me to the image of Christ. Now, this is one of the things I love about the catechism, uh, and it's definitely, uh, a, well, this is Jim Packer showing off is what's happening here. Uh, Jim Packer is one of the smartest, br brightest theological minds that's ever existed, and one of the most holy, godly men I've ever known. Uh, and one of, one of his deep points is that the entire point of the, of the Christian life is to be conformed to the image of Christ. Okay, so think about creation. We're made in the image of God, right? In the, in the beginning, right? Genesis chapter 3. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them, right? And they're very good. What is, and, and then they fall, which means eh. Now, note what happens. He doesn't kill them because their nature is not so corrupt as to be unredeemable. Their nature can be redeemed. Their fallen nature can be redeemed. It can be restored. So he didn't kill them, uh, he goes forward understanding that they can be redeemed. So what is, that, what is that essential part of our human nature that can be redeemed? What is, what is that thing? Well, it's something like this. It's, it's, it's like to be made in the image of God means that we were made to be like Jesus. What does Jesus do? Who is Jesus? And they go, oh, some carpenter from you know, Nazareth in the first century. Who is Jesus Christ? He is God Almighty dwelling in the, in the perpetual light of the Father through all eternity, right? In the unity of the Holy Spirit. He is in tight, close, loving fellowship with the Father as a, as a person of the three-person trinity, right? Okay, so what does that mean? 
to be made in the image of God. It means that you, as a person, were made to live in the reality that is the divine trinity. That's what it means when Paul says uh, to be conformed to the image of Christ. Um, It it means that uh, you're made to be like Jesus, and not just like Jesus, but with Jesus and, and doing what Jesus does. Okay. It's, to, it's to the extent that the fathers, like Athanasius, basically says that God became man that we might become even as he is. Which is what? God, right? Um, now, of course, this, this raises all kinds of riddles. How can I be a human being and God at the same time? Well, Jesus shows us. Um, now, will we be God by nature or God by grace? God by grace, right? We can never be what God is. Um, but we can be adopted, Right? Look, if I adopt a child, I'm not going to say, well, this kid is my adopted daughter. What am I going to say? This kid's my daughter. Okay, and I'm going to say, she's a Nelson. She'll look different. She won't have the characteristic, you know, uh, Scotch-Irish look to her. But what? She'll be a Nelson. And I won't treat, I won't just be, it won't just be that I treat her like that. It'll be like, no, she's a part of the family. I've adopted her. Um, this is what Scripture speaks of in speaking about being a child of God, um, is that you've been brought into the household. Okay? So when, this is Trinity Sunday, so we, there's, a, there's a thing theologians talk about is the economic trinity. What they mean is that the, the trinity is something like a household. Okay? Oikos in Greek means, means household, um, home, family. Um, and so one of the things that we talk about when we talk about the economic trinity is how is it that how is it that the, the interrelatedness between the persons of the Trinity is actually extended to us? It's like, what do we call that? We call that salvation. Right? So one of the things I want to talk about in the sermon today is, is this. When our doctrine of the Trinity falters, um, the Christian idea of salvation becomes untenable. Because the whole economy of the Trinity falls apart and you have, you have nothing to be saved into anymore. It's just simply like, oh, well, it's either escaping this life or escaping the realities of suffering or escaping any of these things. Or it's something like, um, you know what the real problem is? The real problem is you're not trying hard enough. You're a failure. Like, but the reality is, we say, say, you're not trying hard enough, but you know what you really need to understand is that you are actually a self-sufficient person. Is that good news? It's terrible news. Terrible news. Like, terrible news. Look, I mean, I wasn't a great student uh, in, in, uh, in elementary school and junior high. I, I turned a corner. I was a late bloomer. Um, but the worst thing that anybody could have said to me was like, was like this. Yeah, you're smart enough. You can do it. Like, what I actually needed to hear from somebody was like, no, you can do it, and I'm going to help you until you can do it on your own. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sit here and help you. But, uh, but that didn't happen. So anyway, all these things are just kind of, this is an important thing. If you want to help your kids you know, grow, how do you do it? Well, you help them until they're able to do it on their own. Um, they, have to, they have to grow by grace. Um, how is it that we grow in the spiritual life? Well, we grow by grace. We grow because God is helping us. Now, at a certain point, things become second nature in a sense, but uh, it's still because God helps us, right? God is always helping us. Okay. And what's the purpose? To be conformed to the image of Christ. Um, um, meaning we're made to be like Jesus. 
and and uh, listen, you're going to get started now, or you're going to get started later. Mm -hmm. But I say no, now, no time like the present. Okay, what is included in a rule of life? In addition to scripture, prayer, and worship, a rule of life includes witness, service, self-denial, and faithful stewardship of my time, money, and possessions. As I've said before, a, a rule of life has to be written down. Um, one of the keys to it actually being done is that it's written down. Um, and I say put it in some place where you won't where you won't lose it. It might be. Um, I think one of the things that, that you ought to start doing is, um, and I encourage this, is uh, start carrying around with you a stack of the, the following books. Okay? It's the Book of Common Prayer and a Bible, maybe a catechism. Right? Just start having it with you because that's all you need to pray the daily office. Right? Um, if you ever encounter uh, an addict who's in, who's in recovery, what do they have? They got their books. Always, they're always with them, right? Um, I've known alcoholics who are like, I keep a copy of the Bible and a copy of Alcoholics Anonymous, the big book, on my dashboard of my car all the time because I want to have it with me all the time. Um, so really good thing to keep in mind. You, you, you need to have uh, some source material for the spiritual life. So that's one, one way to do it. Um, but what should be included? And, and, well, I say this because that's the place to keep your written rule of life. Right, is in the books where you will be doing the rule of life so that you can see it constantly. All right, ready? All right, a rule of life includes as well witness, service, self-denial, and faithful stewardship of my time, money, and possessions. So these, so there are kind of two sets of three here. Witness, service, self-denial. Okay, what would I say about uh, things that, these are suggestions for a rule of life with regard to witness. Um, so here's one that a friend of mine has. He never allows someone, in fact, I've started doing this too, he never allows someone to say, would you pray for me? And he doesn't immediately pray for them on the spot. Like he doesn't say, oh, I'll pray for you. He never does that. He says, let's pray now. Okay. Um, I'm starting to do some, I've done some of that in my spiritual life, like, hey, um, when somebody says, hey, I'm sick, would you pray for me? Or I'm going through this, would you pray for me? Man, I'm like, I'm ready. Like, I'm, re like, I'm pray for you right now. Uh, amazing, amazing thing that changes when you do that. Um, so that's one way of witness. Another might be to say, um, look, I am never going to uh, uh, not speak the truth of the gospel because of shame. So I am going to be a witness to the gospel at every level in every relationship I have. Um, maybe another one is uh, you're a lawyer. Great example, right? You're a lawyer, right? And you're like, well, how do I do, how do I run my law practice? I had a friend who was a great, wonderful lawyer to argue cases before the Supreme Court, religious freedom cases. Wonderful guy, gentleman, scholar, priest now. Um, and he had the rule that he would never, ever help someone obtain a divorce. Not because he didn't think it was something that could be happened, but he just didn't want to be entangled in it. And he said, it's my witness as a lawyer to first help people restore their relationships if it's possible. And he said, I just, I won't do that. I'll refer somebody, but I won't do it. Um, I, I think that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's not something that everybody should, should say, but I think he, was, he said, you know, for my own integrity, I'm not going to do that. Um, he was also very good about picking his clients. Um, he tells the story, I love the story, uh, he was offered full partner in his law firm when he was a very young lawyer, which is kind of an amazing thing. And uh, they took him out to lunch. And they made the offer, said, we'd like to extend to you the opportunity to become full partner. And uh, 
They said, but there's one, there's one stipulation. You have to uh, drop this client because there's a conflict of interest. Here's the conflict of interest. His client was the Catholic Church in California. This is right before the major scandals of the sex abuse stuff. And the law firm had been representing pornographers in LA. And they said, you have to drop your client. And this man, out of his conviction, out of his rule of life, right, he stood up, he thanked them for the meal, he thanked them for the offer, and he walked out. Like, that's, that's a wonderful witness, isn't it? But you say, this is what you have to have, and it has to be this level of detail in a rule of life. You have to say, I will never do this, ever. Um, if you're a pharmacist, you should say, I will never, I will never give these drugs to people. If I'm a doctor, I will never prescribe them, right? And we all have rules like this. I will never do this. What, what's being asked of me, I cannot do it. I will not do it. Because what happens? Your integrity falls apart. And then what do you have? Well, you have a disordered life. Um, so you have to have some, you have to have some boundaries, right? Um, well, what do these things allow us to do? Well, they allow us to actually be people who actually have the capacity to love. It's really, really key. Okay. So that's worship, service, self-denial. Uh, another, another portion of self-denial is things like, um, you know, I've known people through the years who've done things like, um, they don't take hot showers ever. They take cold showers. And it's just a, it's just a constant reminder that there are people who have less than them. There are people who don't take, who don't even get to take a shower. Um, no, I'm not saying you should go do that, but maybe it's appealing to you, and you say, I'd like to try that. Um, uh, disciplines like this, you know, uh, good disciplines, like uh, some young men, I've told them, like, look, it needs to be in your rule of life. You need to say, I will never be alone with a computer, ever. It's a good rule, right? Um, there are lots of other things that are really helpful. Um, things like, well, self-denial uh, includes things like fasting, right? It's... Um, uh, you should have, I really do, I think that an essential component of the spiritual life is to have at least one day, probably two, of fasting that you undertake on a weekly basis. Um, I don't know how it's possible to grow in the Christian life unless you're able to do that, unless you say, like, I'm going to take on a weekly discipline of fasting. Um, and it might be that you just don't eat certain foods, right? Uh, but it might be that you ramp it up over time and you say, um, I'm, I'm going to basically fast from all food until 4 o'clock or 5 o'clock on Wednesdays and Fridays or something like that. Um, really helpful disciplines and, and, uh, and um, by the way, incredibly healthy too. Like, uh, <laughs> I don't know if you've seen the research on intermittent fasting, but it's like unbelievable. Um, and I was, I was fasting intermittently prior to Easter. I don't fast during Easter, uh, but, but I have to go back to it now. Um, <laughs> and man, it just, you feel amazing. And, and uh, it's because your body's being told, you don't rule this relation. You're not, you're not in charge here. I'm, you know, we're going we're gonna to work on this. All right. Faithful stewardship of my time, money, and possessions. You all know this. The, uh, the tyranny of the now will rule you. Uh, if it's important uh, and other people are saying, I need it now, you have to give it to me now, then you, you, you're immediately uh, sort of in the position of saying, well, uh, oof, I'm really busy today, but I'll try, I'll try, I'll try. And then you spend all day frantically running around and trying to take care of this thing. And then, and then what do you wind up doing? Well, you wind up making serious mistakes. You wind up doing things that you wouldn't have otherwise done. Um, you know, uh, if, it, if it's any help to you to hear this, this is how scammers operate. They tell you, you don't have time. You got to do this now. Or, or bad things are going to happen to you, right? Um, 
So beware of that, right? If you, but if you cultivate a practice of like, you know what? Nothing has to be done now. There is such a thing as an emergency, but that's not what's happening right now, right? Change your whole life. Then you can say like, I can deal with it tomorrow. Tonight, right now. Look, I know I've got 50 unread emails, but I didn't get to them today. Right now, I'm going to cook dinner for my family. I'm going to sit down. I'm going to eat it. I'm going to maybe rest for a little bit, read a little bit, and then I'm going to go to bed. And those 50 unread emails can be dealt with tomorrow morning at 8.30 after morning prayer. Does that make sense? Like, when you have this kind of order, everything starts to work in your life. All right. Um, It also includes faithful stewardship of your money. So... uh, Part of rule of life is things like balancing your checkbook. Who knew? <laughs> you know, I'm terrible at balancing my checkbook, but it, but it's in my rule of life to be watchful at least. Um, and uh, and things like a tithe go into that. Um, and what it's an amazing thing. If you write it down, you will do it. Um, and the other thing is amazing thing when it comes to financial resources. You will not miss a meal. Why? It's amazing what happens when you're not trying to fill up what's lacking in your spiritual life by running around buying things, by running around trying to do things that are not actually as urgent as you think they are. Like all of a sudden, it's like, well, I have money now. Right? Um, it's, it's a really wonderful thing. Um, and, I, and I have money to give because I've told it where it's going to go. Right? Um, and possessions, faithful stewardship of possessions. Um, I made a rule for myself that uh, whenever possible, I would try to buy, some, buy things that are used well used, gently used, but also of such a quality that uh, I'll have them when I die. So <laughs> I've made this a rule of my life. It's like I do not buy personal items, like bags, even some clothes, things like that, that I will not be able to be buried with, essentially, like that I won't be able to hand down to my children. Um, and so far, so good, you know, it's, but you spend a little bit more, but what happens? Don't wear through it, right? Because it's just there. It's there for a long time. Okay. All right. You ready? Or buy things that can be repaired. That's another thing that people don't really know how to do anymore is fix things, right? Um, I was reminded of this just just a week ago. I I have this uh, pressure washer that I bought last August, and it crapped out on me. And I just thought, yeah, I'll crack it open and see what's wrong with it. And I was going through there with my circuit tester and kind of figuring it out. And, you know, I don't know how to do these things, but I, I eventually figured it out. Oh, it's just the plug. I replaced the plug for 10 bucks, you know, and it's working again. I didn't have to spend, you know, 175 bucks to buy a new pressure washer. Um, so this will really benefit you if you just kind of have these things in place and you say, I'm not doing those things. That's not, not what I'm going to do. All right. I mean, just imagine if your rule of life said, I will never buy a new car. Really? That'd be a good party rule of life, actually. That'd be a really good thing. You just say, look, I'm always going to drive a used car. Even though I can afford to buy a new car, I'm just going to drive a used car because I need to be reminded of certain things, especially as I get more and more success or have more and more ability to do things, right? I just need to be reminded of that. Um, Or you just say, I'm never going to drive anything but this, like this particular car. Okay, so there you go. All right, let's do one more. Why is prayer an essential part of rule of life? This is a big dog question. Uh, Through prayer, I rely upon God for strength, wisdom, and humility to sustain and guide me in my rule of life. Without the love of God and the power of his spirit, I will not attain to the fullness of Christ. All right. Through prayer, right? So this is one thing I really want you to get is 
just the essential nature of prayer in the spiritual life. The essential nature, the essential nature of prayer in just the Christian life, let's say that. Um, I think a lot of people say, they, have, they say something like this. The most important thing about me as a Christian is that God loves me and that I'm going to go to heaven when I die and, uh, and that I don't need to worry about things. And what do you find? You say, well, but I do worry. See, and I, and I, and I really need to understand that I'm, that I'm uh, set apart for holiness of life, so I've got to try harder, you know, and try harder to be a better person, you know, and that kind of thing. And then what do you find? Oh, that doesn't work very well, right? So, look, this is the thing. It's the essential to all things. Like, how on earth are you going to become what God wants you to be? And it's got nothing to do. It's got literally nothing to do with all the things that you just assume. It has everything to do with prayer. Everything to do with prayer. Because look, if you get the prayer part right, what do you get? What will you get? Everything else. Everything else will fall into place. It really will. Um, so, there's that. Um, I rely upon God for strength, wisdom, and humility to sustain and guide me in my rule of life. So, Think about this for just a moment. Anything else, anything less than that statement says, I rely upon myself. And what does that mean? Look, this is in the readings for today, but I'm going to read it again. I'll read it maybe for the first time for you today. Um, okay. Romans 8, chapter 6. To set the mind... On the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Okay. Does this mean that Paul is saying that the flesh is evil, spirit is good? Paul is not a Gnostic here. Paul is not saying your body is evil and you should try to ignore it. He's not saying that. What's he saying? that if you rely upon the strength that is in your hands and in your body to overcome sin, to overcome the world, you'll fail, right? Because you cannot overcome. Um, only God can overcome. Um, and this is why we rely on him for strength, wisdom, and humility. Actually, humility comes from God, right? Consider the, the root word of the word humility. Where does it come from? You know this because you sometimes buy it at the grocery store. It's the Greek word humos, which means, which means dirt, earth, ground. Scripture teaches that we're made out of the earth. We're made out of the ground. Humility actually refers to this, um, uh, knowing that you're made out of the ground. Right? Um, sometimes we even use this word like we say that someone who's, who's humble is grounded. Right? Um, someone who's humble is grounded. They, they know who they are, in other words. Okay. Um, and, and who are we? We belong to God. Um, we rely upon this to sustain, and, to sustain and guide me in my rule of life. Those are two different activities. So sustenance is what? Really being fed, right? Being, uh, being strengthened. Um, and guidance is being told where to go um, in my rule of life. Uh, by the way, a rule of life must be constantly edited and updated. It's, it's a kind of constant, ongoing project. You say, um, in essence, like, I'm always looking for an opportunity to work on this document, make it better, fine-tune it, right? Who can help you with that uh, is a spiritual director. 
Um, spiritual director's main job is to look over your rule of life from time to time and help you make edits. And what a good spiritual director will do is say, how's this going? And you might say, man, I gotta tell you, it's really hard. This has not worked out very well. To which my response as a spiritual director would say, well, what should we let go of in, this, in the rule of life? You know, this seems like it's too much. You know, it's just wearing you out, it's too much. Um, most of the time I find myself saying to somebody who's saying this, they're saying, well, it's just not really, it just seems like not enough. Or they just say like, I just, you know, I get away with a lot of things. It's like, I, I do this, I do this, I do what I want most of the time. It's like, well, let's, let's, let's add to it a little bit. Go in a targeted way. All right. Um, Without the love of God and the power of his spirit, I will not attain to the fullness of Christ. Um, this again is straight out of Romans chapter 8. Um, attaining to the fullness of Christ, attaining to the image of Christ, is not, again, it's heresy to believe that we can do this in our own power, right? This is standard Pelagianism. Um, and, and it's essentially this idea that you can just do it. You should be able to do it. And, and my question to you would be like, if you should be able to do it, then why are you not? It's really simple. It's that uh, the life of prayer sustains. The, the life of grace, the life of the sacraments, the life of the church sustains. Um, without that, uh, we can't, there's nothing we can do. Like we will, look, I love what Augustine says about this. He says, at the end of the day, you're either going to stop praying or stop sinning. No, what does he say? God, I can't ever get it right. Yeah, something like that. You know what I'm saying. Um, I'm pretty tired. Um, is it stop praying? Yeah, stop praying or stop sinning. Yeah, yeah, that's it. That's it. Um, and that's the truth. Um, because the reality of it is that, that we're made for communion with God. And we're either going to have it or we're going to walk away from it. Um, and, and the difference is prayer. It's, it's always the difference. So um, if anything that I've said to you about the daily office or rule of life sounds daunting, it's because, well, it's because it's going to require change from you, right? Uh, well, it's a good thing, right? And it will, it will set you up for unbelievable things in life um, where you, you say, God, I, you know, I, I wasn't quite sure how this was going to work out, and it seems to have worked. It's like, well, there's a reason for that. It's because... Uh, uh, a rightly ordered human life can do all manner of things. Um, and this is what Paul is referring to. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He's talking about the grace, the strengthening grace of Jesus in his life. Um, and he's not saying, you know, I can go uh, pole vault at 20 feet or something like that. He doesn't mean, you know, I can play football for the San Diego Chargers. What he means is, um, is that all the things that God puts in front of me, I can do by his grace. But, but, only by his, but only by that strength. Um, which for him meant immense suffering. It meant uh, terrible suffering. Um, but this is what compels him in Romans 8 to say, provided that we suffer with him, um, we, we will be conformed to him. So uh, take that to heart. We'll begin shortly.